I want them to um, focus on Darwinian natural selection and not be persuaded that this is somehow irrelevant to language emergence. I want them to understand what are the sources of evidence that could show that some long dead group had language or didn't have language. What is the source of evidence that language simply appeared from one day to the next as opposed to bigger brains with greater intelligence? Um, to see the problem as a complex one for which no one has the right to dictate the solutions. It's an empirical question from start to finish, and more and more of us are seeing that language started much longer ago than uh, others of our linguistics colleagues believe. Welcome to the story of language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian and I am an English teacher, and throughout this series I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about how language began, including language evolution versus language change, how animal and human communication are similar and different, and the evidence for why language is probably millions of years old, not thousands. If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode six of The Story of Language. Well, well, well this actually brings me kind of to the, to the first question of, of what we're going to talk about today, which is about language evolution and and where language came from but but i think before we can start to talk about that i think we need to define what exactly language is because for example you know you have computers use binary which is ones and zeros and and using using just two things they can create meaning and you know you have like morse code as well which is you know again binary so you know, what, what, is, what is a useful definition of language? Well, if you were uh, a practicing generative linguist, language is um, a, a vocabulary with a semantic interpretation system built around um, a recursive grammar um, with also an interpretive system of sounds or gestures. So that at the core, you have, say, the dictionary or the lexicon. You pull things out of that and you perform syntactic operations that are recursive on those, uh, and spe specifically merge. And then you interpret the results in sound gesture, sound or gesture, and meaning. Um, my definition of language, which is based primarily on purse, uh, is that all creatures communicate. Um, so we can say that communication is the transfer of information by signs, um, and language is the transfer of information by symbols. 
um, and symbols are just special forms of signs. So that means that my dog uses signs. I cannot say that my dog will never use a symbol. Um, I actually, I think there's evidence that animals do have symbols, but what distinguishes animals from humans is not some huge evolutionary gap, but, um, but the qualitative, I mean, uh, the, the, the quantitative superiority of humans given their greater intelligence. So we don't just, we don't just create occasional symbols. We create symbols and interpret them in terms of other symbols. And we create, we're very productive in the creation of symbols. So there's no other creature that can create symbols like we can. As far as grammar goes, um, all you need to do to interpret symbols is to have a conventional order for them. So if I say John saw Mary, and that's the way we all say it, then that's easy to understand that John is the, the person who did the scene. Mary's the one who was seen. Um, there are advantages to other, to more complex grammatical characteristics. So I don't deny the importance of those. And I would expect that most languages would avail themselves depending on their culture and their ecology of similar grammatical mechanisms. But, um, you know, as far as sound goes, the computer language you brought up, say zeros and ones, binary language, um, in principle, that illustrates that you don't need more than two um, symbols of uh, two sounds to communicate anything. Um, now, you need multiple zeros and ones to create a single symbol. Uh, so I refer to the zeros and ones as like speech sounds. Uh, so you only need a vowel and a consonant. And if you, if you have enough memory, which humans don't, to make them arbitrarily long, you can say anything with P and ah that you can with all the consonants and vowels of English. It's, yeah, it's, it's incredible to think that, um, that that's a possibility. And, and that, that, that is actually true in practice, right? Like, for example, Hawaiian has a very small um, like sound inventory, right? So their words in general are much longer than, than languages which have more sounds. Yeah, Hawaiian, Rotokos, Pitaha, and, and other languages. So if you think of a word as a series of slots, what you can put in those slots is called the paradigmatic component of the language. And so the more elements you have to put in slots, the higher the number of vowels and consonants, the greater the paradigmatic complexity. How many slots you have is the syntagmatic organization and so one interesting fact is that greater, pragmatic, greater paradigmatic complexity um, requires less syntagmatic complexity, which means that the more consonants and vowels, the shorter your words can be, because you can distinguish the words based on the greater number of consonants and vowels. But if you have a smaller number of consonants and vowels, you need greater syntagmatic complexity and that means your words are going to be longer. So, you know, in Pitaha, you have a word like uh, which means I'm telling you to go look for something. Um, is the I'm, I'm asking you to 
cause something to be found. It actually makes sense to say that, but uh, uh, you, you insert this uh, uh, vowel with a couple of different tones, you know, it's, it's three vowels with three tones into the word, and, and now you've got cause to find. Um, so when you're learning Peter Ha, you might miss a vowel. You might not hear one of those things. And especially because when they speak very quickly, like all of us, they drop stuff out. Sometimes they keep the tones very subtly, but they have fewer vowels. And so um, you've got to develop your ability to listen to the language carefully, uh, like any language. I mean, Pina has no different whatsoever than any other language. It's just that with fewer consonants and vowels, there's more to pay attention to as the word gets longer. Could you just go back a little bit and and talk in a little bit more detail about some of the the these these theories about uh, I I believe they're they're Peirce's theories about indexes symbols and signs. So ironically, a lot of things were happening in the 19th century. It was just a really exciting century, and um, from the mid 19th century until the early 20th century. Um, you had in the United States, Charles Sanders Peirce working on a theory of signs, and he used the term uh, semiotics or semiosis uh, from John Locke's use of that term, um, borrowed from the Greek, which means sign or miracle, semion. At just a couple of years after Peirce in Switzerland and in Germany, uh, Ferdinand de Saussure was working on he used the same term, although their theories are dramatically different. I mean, there's almost no comparison. So, so Saussure came up with the idea of semiotics, and he had something called a sign, but he only had one sign. And for him, a sign was a, a dyadic uh, element, uh, like, a, like a coin. It had a heads and tails. One side was meaning, one side was form. And that's basically Saussure's theory of signs. Peirce had a much more sophisticated and complicated theory of signs. So at different periods of his life, he had three signs, 10 signs, and 66 signs. And uh, the 66 is really hard to figure out. And he could have actually done even more, but he himself said, he's not sure that you actually need all these signs in the analysis of language, but their logical possibilities, and so it's incumbent upon him to explore the distinctions. But we'll just talk about three of his signs, the, the, the initial three. Um, this sometimes bothers Peirce scholars because they knew he went way beyond these three, but these three are good enough. Um, in icon, which is um, a, res a, a sort of, you can think of it as a resemblance or a correspondence of parts. So, um, the Mona Lisa is an icon of whoever it was that Leonardo da Vinci painted. So there's a correspondence. The eye on the painting corresponds to the eye on the woman that was painted. And the hair on the painting corresponds to the hair. Uh, there's also a resemblance. A resemblance is sort of a holistic impression of correspondence. Um, but you can also have things like um, icons... Um, so, so let's say that an earthworm feels a little bit of moisture 
and uh, they just stay in the ground. Most of the time, earthworms will come out of the ground, but just a little bit of moisture won't bring them out. There's this th threshold of moisture that brings the earthworm out of the ground. And that threshold, um, in a sense, we could call an icon. So the amount of moisture in the soil corresponds to a representation of what's safe in the, in the earthworm wherever it's in there, but the earthworm has to have this in it somewhere. I mean, whether it's in the body or wh wherever, it's got to have the distinction. You know, there's a point, a cutoff point at which the earthworm will come out and expose itself to birds if, because it doesn't want to drown. Uh, so that's, these are icons, these basic simple correspondences. The next thing is an index, which there is a causal connection uh, between um, the object and the index. So if I point at a bird, my pointing is an indication, an index that there's something over there and it's caused in a sense by the object and my desire to communicate the object. An easier example is a footprint. That's caused by an animal stepping in the earth and leaving a mark of its foot. Um, and also smoke, for example, is an index of fire. So there's a causal connection. Um, now, if you look at a footprint, on the one hand, it's an icon because it looks like the foot that formed it. But on the other hand, it's, it's causally formed by the foot. So this shows that uh, each sign has multiple levels of analysis, which makes it a lot more complicated than Saussure. So something can be simultaneously an index, an icon, and a symbol. And so what is a symbol? A symbol is something that is uh, by convention or by nature, um, it, is, it is a form of um, uh, regulated sign. And so, so the most common, since we mainly talk about people, I talk about you know, a cultural uh, convention that uh, DOG is gonna mean uh, canine in English and P-E-R-R-O is gonna mean canine in Spanish. Um, and, and so there's, there's no reason for that. There's no causal connection. There's no correspondence. There's just this sort of agreement. Um, some people would argue that, that bees have an agreement, but it's in their dances, but it's not uh, culture. It is genetics, um, some sort of you know, natural agreement. Uh, I'm not fully convinced by that yet. I would say that bees, you can explain most of what you need to explain about bees by saying they use indexes and icons, and we don't need to talk about them knowing symbols, although I'm open to that. But so, so it's, if you think of just form and function or form and meaning, which is what most people think of when they think of a sign, that's Saussure's incredibly simplistic view of how things work. Uh, so Seward did not have the mathematical background by any stretch that uh, that Peirce had. He didn't have the philosophical background. He didn't have the background of an, as a natural scientist. So his view of these things, while insightful, was incredibly limited compared to Peirce's much more fecund um, uh, theory of, of how meaning gets represented. So... <clears throat> For, for example, there's there's this video that's going around on on social media at the moment, and it's this 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 woman, and she's trained her dog to press different buttons, and it 
the dog, in a way, is making sentences. So it presses the button for want, and then it presses the other button for food. So, you know, wh- where do we where do we sort of make a decision about when something is communicating versus whether something has language? Uh, if you were um, working in generative grammar, this would be easy. Do we find recursive grammar in the dog's behavior? The answer is almost certainly no. Therefore, we can rule it out. Um, we don't find that's not evidence that the dog doesn't think recursively. It's evidence that the behavior doesn't have recursion built into it, perhaps. But then um, by that same, so basically what we've done is we've taken English grammar and we said, if you speak English, you're human uh, or Spanish or something related. I mean, because not all languages have recursion. That's just the facts of the world. Um, But, um, so the dog is definitely communicating, but does it have language? Well, you would have to show in my theory that it's using symbols instead of icons or indexes. And not just a series of icons and indexes, but actually symbols. So a symbol would have to be uh, something that is um, learned by convention, whether this is just an agreement between the dog and the master that this key means food. Um, but an alternative an alternative interpretation is that the dog um, learns a sequence and knows that if it presses in this order, it gets food. That's iconic. It can be considered to be indexical. So the fact that the dog can do this shows dog's intelligence. Um, they have canine intelligence is quite, quite good. And I wouldn't say it doesn't have symbols, but I would say that that evidence doesn't show me yet. There's a, it's, it's harder to show that it has symbols and it's easy to interpret all that in terms of icons and indexes. So um, all plants use um, indexes at least. Um, most animal, all animals use icons and indexes. They know what things look like. You know, last night we were watching this uh, Spanish movie, Don Quixote. Don Quixote. You know, it's about this guy with a donkey walking around Spain. And uh, because the photography is fairly simple and it's got a donkey and a dog and a man, our little, one of our dogs watched the whole movie with us. He was just fascinated. He kept going over and pawing at the screen and sniffing behind the screen and was just totally seeing dog and donkey, you know, donkey. Didn't know what a donkey was, but it was an animal. Um, And uh, so if your dog or your cat responds knowingly to images on TV, they're simply demonstrating not their ability to follow the plot of your movie, but of their ability to recognize icons. So these images look like people. They're not people, but they look like people and they sound like people. So uh, these icons um, are recognized by animals. Um, but there's no in evidence whatsoever that there's something symbolic going on there. So so, so what about if, because um, uh, my, my dog, for example, it knows that when I go to get the lead, it knows that's walk time. So that, that connection between 
you know, the, the, the seeing the lead and knowing that means going out for a walk? Uh, yes. So, so is that a symbol or is an icon or an index? I would say it's an index. That lead points, when, you, when it sees the lead, it knows it, that's pointing to an activity that it's going to get, that it's going to enjoy. Um, you know, dogs don't point, but if, if I, if my dog is looking for a treat that I, you know, I, I don't normally put out my hand and give my dogs treats, just toss them in their general direction. And sometimes they miss them. And then I just point out, snap my fingers and point and my big dog knows right where it is then. Uh, I mean, she can normally find it because of smell, but, um, but sometimes she holds back a little bit because the other dogs are looking and she doesn't want to get in their way. But if I snap to her, she knows, okay, I can have it. And she runs right in the direction that I pointed. But I don't say that's a symbol. I would think that's an index. Um, so um, <clears throat> the lead gets associated. Um, there's a physical causation. You, 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 you get the lead out, you, you put it on the dog's collar, and and that's a sequence the dog recognizes that's going to lead into a into a walk. So it's not clear that that's a symbol. So it's a bit like when I see smoke, that that means there's fire. And so like for the dog, the lead means walk, walkies. Exactly. Uh, so the dog definitely has beliefs and desires. It believes that the lead is going to lead to a walk, just like it believes that that uh, smoke means fire. Uh, I believe that animals do have beliefs and desires and intentionality, which is so crucial to language. In language, the cultural tool, I talk about the basic platforms that are required for language. You know, you have to have intentionality. You have to be able to pick out ground from figure, the figure from a ground. Animals have almost all the characteristics that are required for language, uh, which is why they all communicate so well. But they don't have... Um, a productive symbolic system. Um, and, and so on the one hand, we could say um, no animal has symbols. I think that's probably too strong, although I did believe it. Um, but I've talked to several purse scholars who've, who've tried to convince me that uh, that might be a bit too strong. Uh, but what I can say is that because humans have greater intelligence, they, are, they also make symbols, but they are able to be much more productive, and they have culture, which embeds, um, and, and this, is, this is the other very crucial component. We cannot talk about language in the absence of culture. Um, not, you know, one of the defects I will point out in my work on Peirce that's in progress of Peirce's theory is that he alludes to culture a great deal, but he had no theory of culture because nobody did back then. And, and a lot of what we talk about of signs, you know, is interpreted in culture. So if, if um, an officer says to the soldier's left turn, um, well, he might actually mean left turn. Probably he does, that's because that's what he said. But he could have made a mistake and meant my left, your right, right turn. They will actually... If they're blindly obedient, they're going to turn to their left, even if they know that's not what he meant. But in a battle, that could cost their lives. So um, they're culturally interpreting what is the object of saying turn left? What is the purpose of saying turn left? And is that purpose better served by turning left or turning right? And I can argue it out with the commanding officer later, but I've got to be able to interpret what he said. And I need culture 
to interpret the symbol uh, uh, more accurately. Hmm. And just slightly backtracking towards dogs, um, is, isn't it true that, that your dog has recursive barking? Yes. Uh, I mean, so, so the definition of recursion is so loose that if you mean by recursion binary branching, well, you can impose that on just about anything. That's what Chomsky means. It's not what most people mean by recursion. But So my dog um, barks once if it's sort of suspicious that something's outside. If it hears it again, it'll bark a couple of times. And if it actually sees someone like a UPS person, and God help us if she ever gets out when the UPS guy is putting a package on the porch, um, she's barking constantly. So she's iterating her barking. Iteration is a form of recursion. Um, and, uh, you know, so just repeating something, if I just keep saying the word, you know, like ba 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 in a sense, I'm doing recursion, uh, iteration. And so some people throw re iteration out. I was in a BBC debate several years ago with Cambridge linguist Ian Roberts, who asked me if the Pitaha had iteration, and I said yes, and he said, well, then they have recursion. Uh, but since then, um, uh, many people have argued that iteration doesn't have to be analyzed as recursion in any interesting sense. Uh, that that what uh, you know what Chomsky means is binary branching, or or you could say center embedding. They're all. It's a very complex uh, area. Um, and uh, and so human language, if I'm correct, doesn't need to have that, but it has to have symbols. So you, if you if just as a matter of logic, and this was developed by the, the term universal grammar was developed in the 13th century by the Modestai, um, and 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 taken up again by Peirce. But the view there is. Um, that there are logical constraints on how to use symbols. So when they talk about grammar, they're not using that word in the way that modern linguists do. Um, very often, some do, but um, they're talking about, and Peirce specifically was talking about the logical constraints on how to use symbols. And, and if Peirce is right, then our modern day grammars and theories of grammars are just little tweaks on those logical principles that reflect local culture. Um, but Peirce would have always said that symbols and the logical constraints on them are what are responsible for language. Well, th this sort of brings me on to the next part of our, our discussion, which is actually where did, where and how did language come into being? Because there's kind of two, I think, main competing ideas. One is that it's a, it's a biological event of some type which was either, you know, slow or it was sudden where we, you know, humans had no capability for language and then they had capability for language. And, and the other, maybe the other idea is that it evolved slowly uh, in, in, in a kind of similar way to uh, all other types of evolution. I mean, is that is that a fair summary of the of the of the situation or, or not? Well, it's a fair summary of how a lot of people conceive of it, but I think it's uh, somewhat simplistic. So I don't know anyone who works on language who wouldn't say that human biology is fundamental to human accomplishments. Um, we're not going to see a fish um, walking. That's a biological fact. Um, we're not going to see uh, a dog 
using all our consonants and vowels, that's a biological fact. We will see parrots using most of our consonants and vowels, and that's another biological fact. But, but sure, humans' natural selection, in my view, form the human brain and help form uh, with what we can call dual inheritance theory, what it's often called that in the literature, that culture and language work together, form language. Um, but whether you say that language appeared suddenly or you say that it appeared, that it is defined by grammar and not by symbols. So, so state your thesis. What is the evidence now that we can uh, look for in the distant past to test these? So a lot of people, this is, and it, it can't always be as direct as we would like it to be. Um, so there's been a lot of talk recently about some 44,000 year old paintings um, that have been discovered, you know, we, cave paintings. So a lot of archeologists influenced by linguists want to say that complex tools and painting show symbolism. And this is, um, and they also show grammatical, the ability to organize things grammatically, which is evidenced for, for grammar. And that hafting, putting, for example, putting a wooden handle onto a stone um, shows merge, recursion. So if you got that, you're getting there close to merge. Uh, yeah, maybe, I, you know, I'm not convinced by that stuff, but, but let's see, if I'm right, we're looking for symbols. And what, are, what is the evidence that we're looking for? We're also looking for cognitive accomplishment, right? So, so, okay, so Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens could, could make cave art. They made great cave art. They made tools. Um, for a long time, it was believed that Neanderthals simply wore skins, but now we know they used tailored clothing. They actually sewed their clothing on like we did, and they were, you know, they did, they did um, really well. I mean, they may have disappeared for sexual selection reasons. Maybe they were just all ugly and nobody would mate with them. Once they saw a real man come along, you know, and Neanderthal women didn't want to mate with those guys anymore. So, I mean, who knows uh, what happened? We know that most of us have Neanderthal blood in us, so calling them separate species is, doesn't fit everyone's definition of a species because we are the evidence that they produced viable offspring um, mating with our, our Homo sapiens. So, um, but we look at Homo erectus, so we find, uh, a species that left Africa more than a million and a half years ago. We find a species to, for whom the ocean was no barrier to travel. Um, even across what were then dangerous currents and long distances, um, they, they traveled. Even out, out of sight, they, they visited islands that could not be seen, uh, that were beyond the horizon from shore, and they explored. Um, we might say that they were blown off course fine, but they had to be in something that allowed them to be blown off course. So they made boats. Uh, they traveled. They made settlements that showed internal structure, different uh, organizational capability. So they had organizational capability. They had brains um, within the range of modern human females. Um, so we don't know what that means. If... Um, you know, Susanna Herculano Hosel, a Brazilian scholar now working at Vanderbilt, came up with a way of evaluating the difference between human brains and animal brains, which is not based on size, but the concentration of neurons per cubic centimeter of brains. Um, and uh, 
So we don't know what the concentration of neurons were for um, erectus. We're never going to know this unless we take some DNA from erectus and we clone one, which I'm not sure what that would show, but it would sort of be interesting to put them in a zoo and uh, there'd be all kinds of ethics that would come up there. But um, um, we know that the cultural accomplishments, we know they had culture because we know that they, uh, um, they had tools, they hunted together, they made, they made tools that reflected local technology. So a 500,000 year old scraper from East Africa uh, made by Homo erectus can be distinguished by an experienced archaeologist from a 500,000-year-old Homo erectus scraper from West Africa. They made their scrapers differently. Uh, so that the form and shape of the scraper wasn't dictated solely by the task. Uh, beyond the function, there was a local cultural value um, of how you make these things. And also, there were components of every tool that showed that they went beyond the bare minimum. They wanted to show ability. They showed, uh, um, so they, they show a number of char cultural characteristics and Larry Barheim and I have, uh, he's from the University of Liverpool and are in the Department of Archeology. span He and I have a paper that we've submitted um, on these facts and I talk about these facts to a lesser degree because I hadn't worked with Larry yet in my book, How Language Began which comes out in paperback in the U.S. tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but, um, um, <laughs> well, the, 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 the big difference between that book and a lot of other books is it, it takes natural selection seriously uh, when it comes to human evolution, the hu human linguistic evolution. Uh, another distinction, you know, when I use the term language evolution, we see this all over the place now, and, and one of the ways that people use it, probably the most common usage of language evolution today uh, is language change. So, you know, um, uh, Latin, French used to be Latin, as Spanish did. So you go back 2,500 years or so, 3,000 years, you've got, you've got Latin. And, it, and so some people would say that the change from Latin to uh, French is language evolution. I just call it language change. There may be some evolutionary-like principles in there, but for me, language evolution is going from a creature to zero language to a creature with language. Um, so I reserve, you know, and, and some people have said to me, yeah, well, you're using it in a very specialized way, and who really cares? It's just a term. But I would prefer not to confuse historical linguistics with evolutionary linguistics even though they may share some, some principles. So for me, um, language evolution requires a theory of natural selection. It, you have to know about the original populations. You have to look for the evidence. So the evidence for Homo erectus is in growth of skull size, growth of brain size, cultural accomplishments. Um, um, you know, we see even the fact that from Australopithecus to Erectus, Australopithecus was probably the ans direct ancestor of uh, Erectus, Australopithecus africanus. And, uh, and so the canines, the teeth, the canine teeth go way down in Homo erectus, which indicates more stable relationships. Men don't have to be fighting tooth and nail literally uh, over females. There's likely some sort of monogamous relation that doesn't require constant battling for mates. 
Uh, the brain is getting bigger. Uh, they have the, you know, the big brow ridges, which seem to have had the function of shading their eyes from the sun, which wouldn't be bad to have those still today. I wouldn't mind having some big brow ridges and wouldn't have to wear a hat all the time. Uh, but, um, you know, so they had stronger jaws. They, uh, but they stood upright. They had culture. And according to others, you know, I mean, if you take Milford Wolpoff, I believe is his name, who, from the University of Michigan, who argues that all sapiens evolved locally from their own Homo erectus populations, that Homo erectus led directly into sapiens, uh, Denisovans, um, uh, uh, Nadelli, uh, Neanderthalensis, that the basis for all these others is Homo erectus. We just all came from Homo erectus through local pressures and changes. This is not so widely accepted as it once was, but what we do see, but it is still in China, and some Chinese archaeologists still take this theory as, as superior, um, largely because it makes Homo sapiens originate in China, uh, <laughs> which is kind of kind of cool instead of Africa. But um, uh, these questions are, are relatively unresolvable, perhaps. But uh, what they what the theories show is that everyone recognizes the special huge quantitative evolutionary jump that Erectus represents. Well, I mean, I think this, this, this is interesting to me, this, because if you, you know, all, all the books that I've read, apart from yours, about, you know, language evolution, and, and even, um, and when I say language evolution, I should, I mean, as in when language came into being, right? Not language change. Um, you know, what, and, and if you Google it, you know, you look in Wikipedia, you know, the dates vary kind of maybe between like 45,000 years ago, maybe 100,000 years ago. But, but, you know, when I read your book, it was like, well, probably more than a million years. And, and, now, and now, you know, in, in this paper, it's it's 1.8 million years was when they first um, when you estimate they first used symbols. So I mean that's a massive difference between what's kind of accepted knowledge and you know what's 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 the new evidence that that kind of leads to this conclusion. I would ask the question uh, just the reverse. What's the evidence that led people to believe the silly idea that language is so recent? And the, and the evidence is basically none. Um, there is not a shred of It comes from uh, the huge uh, authority that Chomsky holds in the field. And if, if you believe that languages merge and, and that's all it is, then it could only, um, you're gonna look for human-like, modern human-like characteristics. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong, by the way. What I, and I'm not saying that it's proven that language is much older. I, I think the case is far stronger for that. But at the same time, um, what you have to rule out, if you're talking about language and you believe that language is a specially dedicated uh, genetic module, uh, brain module that, that supports language, you have to rule out the contribution of intelligence. It can't have anything to do with greater intelligence, right? Because nobody ever said, I would say this, but, but a generativist would not say that language comes out of humans' greater intelligence and their culture. They would say that language comes out of a special dedicated genetic component. Um, 
<clears throat> but if you if you believe that evidence for culture is evidence for the growth of symbols in a quantitative way uh, and evidence for higher level communication, evidence for greater uh, cooperation, um, then that evidence is, is quite old. And the evidence for symbols is quite old. And when you think about the fact that they had to build a boat, they did not build the boat by grunting. There's too much specialization that's required to do something like that. There's too much evidence for their planning and the way they distributed things. For example, if you take the standard Neanderthal stone tool kit, it has been closely, these tools, there are a lot of experts today who can make these tools and they make them just like Neanderthal made them, okay, as far as we can tell, with the same materials. And what they have found is that when they teach graduate students how to use these, demonstration is not enough. You've got to be able to tell them. You can't see everything at once. So you've got to be able to tell them something occasionally. And in and, and my field research in the Amazon, I've watched uh, people, guys, teach their sons how to make blowguns and bows and arrows. And most of it is observation. But there are key points in the process in which linguistic instruction is inserted. So when you look at the complexity of, of the, and the variety of tools that Homo erectus used, and we're looking for evidence, um, and, and some might be appearing, that they, they carefully, they dyed their tools, and they, they even used some hafted tools, then we're sh and they carried their tools across long distances, their tools really become symbolic. And, and as soon as we see evidence for symbols, um, we have evidence for language. Now, why don't they have art, you know, paintings? Why don't they have, well, you know, I don't do paintings. You know, I mean, you're not going to, if wherever I live, you're never going to find paintings on the wall. I mean, it just, unless I bought them, in which case that can be determined. So uh, why didn't the culture produce any paintings? Well, these are cultural values. That, and it's also possible that, and likely that they were quite, le they were much less intelligent than we are right? People who own dogs have to be convinced that dogs don't have language because whatever it is they do, it's extremely close. I mean, we would, those of us who love our dogs would like to say that they're pretty much talking to us, you know? Um, but um, if a dog can do that, how much more the, the most cognitively advanced creature that had ever walked the face of the earth prior to our arrival, Homo erectus. I mean, if you take Homo sapiens out of the picture and Homo neanderthals out of the picture, then by far the most intelligent creature on the planet would be Homo erectus. And if a dog can almost convince us that they're talking, it's unlikely that erectus couldn't have gone uh, beyond that. I mean, they're, so, so for example, if you take a chimpanzee who has a brain of about 450 cc's and compare it to an Australopithecus, which had a brain of about the same size, the accomplishments of Australopithecus leave the chimpanzee in the dust. Um, so if, if um, the process of being able to measure neurons per cubic centimeter could be applied to Australopithecines, I bet that we would find that even though they had 450 to 550 cc's of matter in their skull, it was probably far more compact uh, with, with, with neurons. Um, and, and so when we get to Homo erectus, where we get a doubling of that size. So, so the average cubic centimeters for a, 
Uh, Neanderthalensis was about 1,400 to 1,500. The average for Homo sapiens is about 1,200 to 1,350 in that range. And the average for erectus would have been 950 to 1,100 or so. So less than us, but the average European female has 950 to 1,000. Uh, and we would never say that women are less intelligent than men because the size size in that case doesn't matter. Uh, it is the concentration of neurons um, that, that matters. Um, and so what we have to look for Homo erectus are not the fact that they had slightly smaller brains, but what were their accomplishments? And they had incredible accomplishments that imply the existence of language. Yeah, I mean, it seems very difficult to imagine doing even the most basic, even even performing the most basic tasks that I could imagine a kind of primitive society doing, like building a shelter or making a boat, or it seems it seems like it would be impossible to do without some type of, of language. Yeah, so the question is not why people believe language is 45,000 to 200,000 years old, but why they don't believe that it's older uh, when the evidence suggests that it is. Um, very often, if you approach a subject um, from a neutral, it's almost impossible to do this. But So when I came into looking at language evolution, I really had no axe to grind. Um, in fact, here's the story of that book. I'm sitting in my study and I'm trying to think of a of a book idea because I liked, you know, something that would that would would help people better appreciate language. And I get a letter from my publisher in England saying, "Why don't you write a book on language evolution?" And I said, "Well, I don't really know anything about language evolution." And they said, "Here's a chance to remedy that." So, you know, I took. Um, I work, worked on two books simultaneously. I worked on Dark Matter of the Mind and How Language Began, and I finished them within a few weeks of each other. Um, but during that period of two years, I was just reading everything on evolution and culture that I could get my hands on. And, um, and I talked a lot with people who were, um, who, were, who were doing this kind of research. And I realized nobody has a good reason for saying that there was no language back then. Um, it's just that it's a theoretical position that only sapiens speak like sapiens, which is circular. Um, so, so we look into this, and, uh, and when the book came out, you know, it's had, it's had mixed reviews. They're, they're by and large positive, but a lot of people have said, oh, this is total speculation. Well, so is the idea that it's only 45,000 years ago. We have, the, we have this idea that, that science is a democracy. Um, it is true that the majority of scientists, um, if, if there's one person over here saying X and the majority of people are saying Y, then X is probably wrong, but not necessarily. So, but really the crucial evaluation for me was when I started getting letters from archaeologists saying, and, and I got letters from three separate archaeologists in different parts of the world um, saying, I always thought that erectus had language, but I was told that linguists said that's impossible. So that explains a lot of it right there. There's intimidation for somebody who does archaeological research to cross into the territory of another discipline and tell that discipline they're wrong. This, this, but, but now you, you see this. We have evidence for, um, there's a new thesis that just came out um, in Spain, a doctoral dissertation about Neanderthals sailing to Gibraltar, and there's um, there, there just 
overwhelming evidence that Erectus was a world traveler, very well organized, uh, that they made good, they, they did fair, fairly well advanced settlements 750,000 years ago and earlier, and that uh, their tools represented far more than just the functional constraints on tools. They carried them, they preserved them, they colored them, they uh, used them, they, they certainly instructed others in how to use them because we see the East-West Africa split these cultural divisions there. So, so you can say, uh, the, valid answer, the valid responses to this is that your evidence doesn't convince me. But that applies as well to the 45,000-year-old as to the 1.5-million-year-old theses. So both of them have to, have to put up or shut up. What is the evidence? Oh, sure, if, if I see somebody having a conversation and I say, they have language, I'm probably right. You know, I mean, it's, it's almost certain, especially if I know what they're saying. You know, so that doesn't require a lot of evidence. So looking for people who live like we do and saying, oh, they had language, and people who didn't like to live like us don't have language, just shows to me a lack of field, of field research. People don't have, especially linguists, ironically, simply lack careful uh, comparative field research in a variety of languages. I've, I've worked on over 20 languages in the Amazon, and I've done personal field research on at least a dozen of those. I've visited the groups, I've done, I've conducted a licitation. And so what you have is a range of groups living in the same area, the same ecology, with radically different cultures, very different cultures. And this is something that, you know, so uh, for example, uh, among the Yanomami, which has been, they've been claimed to have violence provoked by shortage of women, but it's basically what's excited a lot of nativists about the Yanomami is the thesis that people are basically violent and given the right ecology, we're going to behave violently. And so Pinker's book, uh, The Angels of Our Better Nature, who claims, I mean, basically that book is John Lennon's song, uh, It's Getting Better All the Time. Uh, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things she loved, but it's getting better all the time. Um, so, so probably it is getting better, but it has nothing to do with, uh, with strictly one-to-one -one correlation with the ecology. Because the Pitaha, who are in the same jungle as the Yanomami, are one of the most peaceful people that's ever been documented. They can kill just as effectively as the Yanomami. They know how to travel through the jungle as well as anyone. They make the people on Naked and Afraid look like bumbling idiots, which, I mean, even I make them look like bumbling idiots, and I'm, I'm not a great survivalist. I, I, it, I, I find that show extremely entertaining because the Peter Haas show would be naked and not afraid of shit. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but they have a culture to back them up and you're taking people outside their culture and you're having them, you know, they have a little, you know, marginal experience with survival. Um, but uh, the, compared to the Pinaha who's, who have quarter inch calluses all over their feet and leather like skin and, and can detect any distinction in the jungle because they have learned to read the signs just just going a little bit back to, to to the fossil record and to the kind of archaeological evidence because i know that for a while there was a lot of talk that 
language would have been impossible for, for example, Homo erectus, because, you know, the voice box wasn't in the right place, or they didn't have the vocal folds. And But I think, as far as I know, a lot of that has been pretty much debunked. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, first of all, it doesn't matter. And second, if it did matter, it's not clear that they didn't have vocal apparatus, uh, vocal apparatus very similar to our own. Um, some people said they didn't have a hyoid bone and exactly, you know, so that they couldn't have made all the sounds we made. But then recently, other people have argued strongly against that. Tecumseh, Fitch, and I disagree about most things. But one thing we agree on is that speech is much old. The capability for speech is much older than might have otherwise been thought of. Although um, Jeffrey Lightman, who is um, uh, a physical anthropologist who's also at... Um, I believe it's Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, when I gave a talk on this stuff at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, he stood up and he said, this would explain why we see such rapid evolution in Homo erectus vocal apparatus, um, because if they had language, now there's a reason to develop speech. So um, if you only need symbols and you can have two sounds as computers show us because you can type anything that you can say into a computer that only has zeros and ones, then Erectus could have had a whistle speech combined with a small phonemic inventory that they could make up more or less. And they would have had a perfectly adequate language, um, not one to give a lot of speeches in because uh, it would have been maybe somewhat garbled. But that's one theory. The other theory is that they had the same vocal apparatus we have. Um, and language and evolution always takes advantage of what it already has, right? It doesn't. So you come up with language and you realize that the most efficient way, you realize this not consciously, of course, but just by, by doing, um, you realize that speech is far more uh, effective than gestures for communicating the bulk of the language content. And so I can make these sounds and I can hear these sounds pretty well. Cool. We'll just use that. You know, it may be no more complicated than that, or it may be I couldn't make the sound E. Phil Lieberman says that Erectus could not have made the cardinal vowels like E, A, and U. And to make those, the tongue had to evolve to go farther back in the mouth to enable us to make these sounds. That's also fine because one of the things I'm not doing is coming up with a theory of the evolution of speech. I'm working on the evolution of language of which speech is but one of the handmaidens uh, of, of, uh, of language. So, um, you know, as soon as you realize your dog, if you think your dog can talk, but they lack the words, um, you're basically saying that if they lived long enough, you know, dogs only live 10 years, who knows what they could do if they lived a hundred. Um, uh, they just, they don't have enough time to, to work out uh, more complex symbols. I mean, I, I, I think there's just an obvious difference between humans and dogs that explains 99% of, and we're smarter than they are. I mean, they can collect data in ways that we cannot collect, but um, I would put my species up against any other species for general intelligence. Uh, <laughs> not, not general moral um, judgment, but, uh, but intelligence. So, so we, whenever you ask somebody, they say, well, um, um, you have to have language, or, you know, there has to be a biological component to language. And you say, well, 
why couldn't that biological component be the brain? You know, just a big brain. You know, what's, what's wrong with that? Well, then you have to explain how language, you know, why do we have the speech sounds we have? Well, because the vocal apparatus and the ears evolve together so we can hear the sounds we make better than we can hear other sounds. So what's the mystery there, guy? Well, I think, I think that the neuroscience is pretty clear about the, 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 the correlation between language ability and general intelligence. Um, and, you know, there's not really, well, when I asked, for example, Ev Fedorenko, if there was a, I asked her directly, is there a language organ? And she said, well, no. Well, I have her research as one. I'm giving a final exam today in the evolution of human behavior, and uh, her work is one of the questions on there. Um, yeah, she, she talks about language networks. There are fascinating um, uh, similarities. And, you know, take any two people who speak any two languages, and their languages will occupy a network of almost the identical space in their brains. That's fascinating stuff, you know. Uh, I asked Ev if anybody has done the same kinds of tests with shoe tying um, to see if where we tie our shoes is found in the same place in every brain. Uh, I suspect it may be, and food preparation. There are certain cells in the brain that are better for some tasks than other tasks. And, uh, and so if you look at the Broadman areas that people talk about, and, and they say, well, this is where language is, this is the language. But, then you find out that a lot of those things do multiple tasks. The exciting thing about Ev's work is that she's pretty much ruled that out. She says, in the language network, you're only going to get language. And what's most important is semantics, meaning, which totally fits with my view, although she would, she's never said this and she doesn't work on semiotics, so she's never going to say this. Uh, but it's perfectly compatible with my view that what's crucial is symbols, meaning, and that what's secondary is grammar, because that's one of her conclusions after looking at dozens of subjects across a variety of languages, uh, grammar is secondary to symbols in the brain. I mean, I mean, of course it makes it, you know, if, if you, if you asked a five-year-old to draw language evolution, you know, then they would, you know, draw a picture, an individual picture, right? And then they would draw the pictures going together, which is kind of a simplified version of that. Like you start with symbols and then you learn how to put the symbols together and that's grammar. Just, just going back a little bit because your your paper with 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 Larry, um, one one of the the conclusions, well, in, one of the key points that you make is that, uh, well, it's number two is the concept of a proto language is unnecessary, and, I mean that that's that that seems counterintuitive, right? Surely before you have a language, you need a proto language. Why? I mean, is the Model T a proto car? Uh, I mean. Uh, you, you can, you know, is a bicycle a proto car? Uh, I mean, why do you need a proto language? If you believe that language is binary recursive structures, um, you don't need a proto language there either, right? Because you could just, you're born with it. Well, somebody was born with it. Now they will, they will utter recursive sentences that nobody else can understand because they can't process recursion. So then they will die out. There's no real good natural selection view of, of how recursion spread throughout the system, uh, throughout the species. But um, what is a proto-language? Well, a lot of the work on proto-language, most of it was done by linguist Derek Bickerton based on his work with Creoles. Uh, Creole languages, which he called, he used as exemplars of proto-languages. But as I talk about at length on this in Language the Cultural Tool, 
Um, the the foundational book by Sarah Thomason and Terence Kaufman, two of my former colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh on contact-induced language change, uh, has a long section debunking just about every single thing Derek Bickerton said about Creoles. Um, and I think he was quite wrong about what he said about Creoles. Uh, but since that was the basis for what he said about proto-language, that undermines that theory. But let's assume that theory is okay. Proto-language simply describes languages that have much simpler grammatical structures than we have. But they're still languages. I mean, by his theory, Peter Hahn would look superficially like a proto-language if we didn't look at the verbs. The verbs don't fit his definition of proto-language because they're incredibly complex. But, but um, you know, if you just took um, an illiterate, isolated Mandarin speaker in the backwoods of China, they don't have, I mean, they would look like they're speaking a proto-language. Um, but it's, it's a language. The proto before language simply doesn't add anything to the explanatory value. It means, so let's, let's say that you had a homo erectus that had three symbols. And okay, so why not call that a proto-language? What's the advantage of calling it a proto-language? Sure, it, got, it can get more complicated over time. Everything starts simpler, but it's functioning as a language. It is a language. I mean, you can say that, that a Model T is a proto-car um, because today we have uh, Teslas that are overpriced and underfunctioning, functioning uh, uh, or Ferraris, which are overpriced but function quite well, I understand. Uh, but... Um, but that doesn't mean that the Ferrari is, is a different entity than the Model T. It is quantitatively superior. It is not qualitatively different. Um, you know, I mean, if you, if you uh, I'm listening to the history of Vietnam by Max Hastings right now as I drive back and forth to work. And he was comparing the inferiority of the U.S. Um, M16 automatic, semi-automatic rifle in Vietnam compared to the much cruder um, AK-47, the Kalashnikov, um, and why Americans would have rather had the Kalashnikov, uh, even though it was a much simpler uh, weapon because it didn't fail as much. And, and I've brought this out many times. If you have complex sentences and you're in a noisy environment, um, the sentences are going to jam as it were. They're, they're, they're going to be harder to follow. Whereas if you have very short, simple sentences, um, you lose less information when you, once noise happens. Um, so, so there is a sense in which the slower information rate and the simplicity of the grammar is superior in certain ecologies to, uh, uh, you know, an, to a, a, a grammar that basically reflects a literate culture. Yeah. May, maybe, maybe as you sort of, were alluding to before maybe the the view of uh, language needing a proto language is a bit kind of egocentric in the sense that if the language doesn't look like what we have now then we don't consider it language right and especially when you think about the fact that uh, most of those observations were based on an incorrect analysis of a different kind of language a creole language so um you know there are language contact situations that produce um, interesting phenomena, but the people who produce them already do speak another language. And so they are bringing their language to bear on this. Um, you know, you, 
if uh, take the Turing test, right? He said if um, if a computer can can fool a human into think they're carrying on a conversation, then they're intelligent. Well, apply that to so-called proto languages that. Um, and if they can say what they need to say and communicate and do the things they want to do and communicate with us, it's a language. Um, there's, there's, you know, you, what, what is it that proto-language is supposed to explain? It is exposed, it's supposed to explain um, a phase for which we have no evidence whatsoever and that languages were far simpler than they are. To, as far as we know, Homo erectus had full-blown recursive merge. I mean, we don't know this, but I, my thesis says they didn't need it. It doesn't say they didn't have it. They just didn't need it. Um, so the, if you start with the idea that, um, that Homo sapiens language is language, and anything that deviates from that is not language, then erectus couldn't have had language, but they communicated better than dogs, let's say, so they had a proto-language. That is species-centric. Most of the most of the claims we make about other species of the genus Homo are what we would call racism if we were referring to other members of the Homo sapiens. We're simply species centric, um, and we're not willing to consider the possibility that another species of Homo um, had what what we have. We don't know where Homo neanderthalensis went. It could have been sexual selection. It could have been dogs with Homo sapiens coming up to Europe that made them more better hunters. Um, it wasn't clothes, it wasn't art, it wasn't weapons, probably wasn't intelligence. Um, you know, what explains it, and we've been through this before, what explains one culture wiping out another, which happens throughout human history. Um, uh, the genus Homo has always been excellent in genocide. Um, and, and what does that have to do? Are the victims of genocide evolutionarily inferior? Therefore, uh, Hitler would have said yes. And most of us would say absolutely not. It has nothing to do with the American Indian or the Native Americans or the First Nations of the Americas were largely wiped out in the greatest Holocaust in the history of the world that we know about. Um, uh, and it had nothing to do with them being uh, lacking language, you know, I mean, I was asked this question, if Homo erectus had language, weren't they here anymore? Uh, somebody in Hungary asked me this, and I said, what happened to the Jews of Hungary in World War II? I don't think it had anything to do with recursion. <laughs> he wiped them out. I just visited a synagogue where everybody was wiped out um, during the war. So this is a non sequitur. This doesn't, this is a silly argument to raise in these contexts. The an archaeologist can come back and say, in response to the paper that Larry and I have written, I simply don't see evidence for symbolism in here. Every single tool is driven by function and function alone. So they were good toolmakers, okay toolmakers, but I don't see any evidence for symbolism. Okay, so we can argue about that. I think they would have to ignore a lot of evidence to say that, uh, but that's the kind of argument you'd have to make. You simply can't say it's not plausible. I think maybe it reminds me a little bit about the kind of Eurocentric view of language, you know, a couple of centuries ago where, you know, they wanted to make English more like Latin, for example, because Latin was real language and, and you know, French and, 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 and English were these horrible kind of mongrel you know, tongues. Well, English is a mongrel tongue, you know, I mean, English almost died out entirely in the 12th century. Um, 
you know, the French who are so worried about English taking them over has already so dominated English that 55% of our words come from French uh, when, from the Norman invasion. And uh, we're still suffering the effects of French imperialism in our little English speaking world. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, these, you know, people are cruel, they kill each other, they do all sorts of things, but English has rebounded. And it's, it's uh, you know, I'm glad I speak it. It's a great language to have. Is it better than Arabic? Uh, who would possibly be able to say such a thing? You know, there's no language. People always ask me, what's the most difficult language to learn? I say the one that's least like your own. Uh, you know, and it's just, <laughs> yeah, you know, you cannot say one language is superior to another. So, so let's let's just um, go back a, a, just a little bit and talk a little bit more about kind of the difference between language uh, evolution and language change. Because does does anything about the, what we know about language evolution now does that tell us anything about maybe how language came into being? Like, like for example, if we look at um, I know I know there's a lot of research at the moment about how language evolution tends to be driven by efficiency. Um, and does that, you know, does that give us any insight into, you know, 1.8 million years ago? Yeah, there are all sorts of things that, that give us insight, you know, so you start off with basic symbols and you have to add on to that. You have to add uh, functionality, you know, verb conjugations, tenses, aspects. You don't have to add these things, but they make language language works a lot better with these things. So you can add them according to your own culture. So, um, and, and they will follow, there is always a trade-off between maximal efficiency and memory or effort. Um, so, you know, there's a sense in which it would be maximally efficient to have one sound for every word. Um, but then that taxes our memory and nobody can do that. So we come up with languages that, that balance that out but produce all kinds of you know, ambiguity and, um, and homonyms and, and you know, so two T-O, two T-O-O, two T-W-O. You know, so we have a few things like this. Um, it's a trade-off because to avoid that entirely, we'd have to overtax our memory. And there's a lot of work by Ted Gibson and Steve Piantadosi and Evelina Federinko on, on exactly these topics using uh, Ziff's law uh, and other, other measurements of relative efficiency compared to memory uh, limitations. Uh, and George Miller, uh, psychologist uh, George Miller, um, has done a great deal of work on, on memory. You know, so for example, um, we can't remember more than three or four things. Maybe, you know, he says the magic number seven plus or minus two, uh, you know, the things we can remember. So our brains are supposed to be these, they are, you know, given the rest of the world, the other species, we have these magnificent brains that can't remember more than seven things at a time. Um, you know, so we, we need all the help we can get. And language is a great help for that. Uh, Long-term memory is another help for it. But keep in our working short-term memory, we can't keep more than seven things. And, and uh, uh, all groups, there's not a group ever been studied that couldn't distinguish between three and four uh, or, or uh, visually, but who can't distinguish between, a lot of groups can't distinguish visually between nine and, and 10. Yeah, um, but I think, uh, um, ironically, 
some primates are really good at that. Yeah, probably some dyslexics too, because you know one of the things we talk about in my evolution of human behavior class is uh, is neurodiversity, and it turns out that if there were no reading and writing, many dyslexics, who we today call dyslexics, would be considered mentally superior because of their greater ability to visualize and and um, and use spatial visual judgment in ways that that some of us who don't have some of the visual issues with literacy have. Um, and so among the Pitaha, there, you know, there's some great hunters and maybe they're great hunters uh, because they have something in their brain that if we actually taught them to read and write, they would be dyslexic. Uh, they just visualize the world <clears throat> differently. So, so many of the tests, you know, what does it mean to be talented? What does it mean to be intelligent? These are culturally determined. If you have great ability on the guitar, but nobody in your culture plays the guitar, it's a, you know, in what sense are you talented? The talent doesn't mean anything unless the culture values it. Are you a genius? Well, um, Einstein, how would he stand out among the Pitaha? He's either a good hunter or he's a bad hunter. He's a bad hunter, he's dead. Um, he's gonna starve to death. And you know he's not going to he's not going to develop the special theory of relativity among the Pitaha because that came out of a particular culture, and the Pitaha do other things. You know it doesn't mean their culture is inferior; it just means they're extremely well adapted to where he is, and they didn't invent a bomb. Uh, you know, so um, you know the superior, so-called superior culture is the one you know you have to worry about. Um, so so it's. <clears throat> So much of what we we think we know and the way we evaluate things, you know, take the take the concept meme, uh, which I've also talked about before. This is somehow considered a building block of culture. Memes are byproducts of cultures. They don't build anything. And the idea that they build cultures, so they're what they are are signs in the Persian sense. Peirce talked about what we would today call memes over a hundred years ago as the basis of human cognition, signs. John Locke talked about these things. Um, but today you have people trying to evaluate and build models of so-called cultural evolution based on the spread of memes. This is something that gives great comfort to people who like statistics, but it's really not science. Uh, science is why did the meme spread? Um, what is it about the cultural values and the shared dark matter of the mind that causes certain memes to be, which are signs? What causes certain signs to spread more? So a meme is like the, you know, it's just like any word we have or any, they're just symbols. So, so to finish up, what is it that you want people to know about where language came from? I want them to um, focus on Darwinian natural selection and not be persuaded that this is somehow irrelevant to language emergence. I want them to understand what are the sources of evidence that could show that some long dead group had language or didn't have language. What is the source of evidence that language simply appeared from one day to the next as opposed to bigger brains with greater intelligence. Um, to see the problem as a complex one for which no one has the right to dictate the solutions. It's an empirical question from start to finish and more and more of us are seeing that language started much longer ago than uh, others of our linguistics colleagues believe. Thank you.